0: If we've not met before, my name is Andrew. Um, I don't work at the church. I work at CSU. Uh, I'm in the vet school there. I'm one of the deans. Um, but my wife and I, Sarah, we love, we love this place. Sarah does work here. And every once in a while, I get to uh, stand in front of you and cry. So I'm excited uh, to be able to probably do that again today. I don't put it into my notes. It just kind of squirts out sometimes. So... Um, unapologetically, it's likely, uh, I'll cry today. Um, also (laughs) I have spent, well, pretty much all my life looking for ways to save money. Just the way my mind works. Um, some of you might be this way. Um, and there's like the people who like try to find sales and discounts. And then there's people like me where it's like next level. So just as one, one example. So I, um, lived in this magical time when you could graduate from college and be a school teacher and buy a house. That's what I did. So I bought my first house. It was tiny, but I could afford it on a school teacher's salary. It was amazing. It had this little dirt driveway, tiny little thing, and it was just dirt. And so when it would rain or when it would snow, you would get mud there. And my my friends were like, you should put gravel there. And I'm like... Gravel costs money, lots of money, and I'm not spending money because this is what I do. And then I had this idea. So in, in the mountains of Colorado, instead of paving roads, we often do this, which is called chip seal, where they put a layer of tar, layer of gravel, layer of tar level gravel, and then they sweep off the gravel to the sides of the roads. For anybody who might need gravel. So um, <laughs> Much to my, at that time, my girlfriend's dismay, now my wife, um, I would drive my car to the side of the road with my shovel and I would climb out, shovel, shovel, scoop, 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 climb in the car, drive forward 10 feet, climb out again, scoop, scoop. Uh, I tried to talk Sarah into helping me with this and she's like, there is no way, there's no way I'm helping. And I'm like, it's there for the taking. So saving money, um, why wouldn't you do this? Um, so that has been part of me forever. So when I was in college, uh, college is expensive and has always been expensive. And um, I remember my first year, I was in the dining hall and I saw, um, I was at Montana State University there, beautiful place, Bozeman. Um, I, I saw a job advertised and it was to be a resident advisor. And if you don't know what that is, a resident advisor lives in the, the residence halls and is responsible for the, the, the residents who live on, on one of the floors. And, but this thing caught my mind Caught my eye. Do you see what it says? Perks of the job: free room and board. That means free food and free housing for a year. Sold. Where do I sign up? So I I, um, I applied. I attended this info session, and it was it was something you, know, you had to like interview, and you had to do some role play. It was a little dis- uncomfortable, but they they said, Andrew, we're going to give you the job. We have assigned you to the study floor. I'm like what's? What's the study floor? Oh, it's on the fourth floor, Langford Hall. The study floor is 23 hours of quiet per day. <laughs> I'm like, what? Like, what kind of college kid comes and decides they want to be in the floor that's 23 hours of quiet? And I think, but hey, it's free food. It's free living. So sure, let's do it. Well, it turns out the type of person who does it um, have degrees uh, that rhyme with engineering. Uh, and... Um, <laughs> computer science and they have they have rooms that oftentimes look like this, and so um, almost everybody on my floor was a gamer, and this was like one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine um, so gaming um, like now, I think, I'm not a gamer, but I think you can like basically get online and you can game with people across the country. But this wasn't the way gaming was. You had, it was just you, unless you were on a college where there was this internet and you could actually link up all your computers and play games. And so this is what the residents on my floor did with their 23 hours of quiet, is they get in these rooms and they block off all of the, the light and all the windows and all the stuff, and then they focus and make the thing all about the gaming thing. This is totally foreign to me. Um, I'm like, I'm never going to find friends here. Um, but it was free. And every once in a while, you would walk in, and you'd be like, I wonder where everybody is. And you'd hear in, like, unison, whoa! Because they're all linked up, and something, you know, exciting happened on the video game. Anyway, so that's how people would leave even, like, their desk space. And I'm like, what do you? You just took, took something apart and just, like, left it? And they're like, yes, of course. That's how life is. I'm like, there's a trash can. Anyway, because I, if you don't know me, um, I tend to keep spaces much more like this. This was my dorm room. Or, or... <laughs> I didn't have a picture of mine, um, but this is much what it was like. I had a double-sized room, uh, but I was just me in there. And I, I'm just a tidy, meticulous person. I have been my entire life. Uh, I just have always been this way. And so I set up my room much like that. I had the cheapest furniture I could afford, but it was there. And the room was set up just to, to try to like, let, let people come in. And so, so I did. I bought the finest charcuterie that my money could buy in the form of animal crackers at Walmart, and I opened up the door. And I remember the guys living in the dorms, they would like walk by and like do like a double take and be like, huh, and they would turn and come into my room. And first it was one guy and we would talk and then it's two guys, then it's three guys, then it's nine guys, and then it's 15 guys. And before we know it, over time, this is Grand Central Station. And all of a sudden they're bringing their gifts, the finest drink that they can afford. Uh, (laughs) If you've ever done Mountain Lightning or Dr. Thunder, these are drinks that I got exposed to. Um, (laughs) And it turned into late nights of going Havsies on pizzas, and it turned into board games, and it turned into Wednesday evenings watching The Simpsons and then going to Campus Crusade, which is like... uh, But we did it, and and it was sweet. You know, I was in the wedding of of like three or so of those guys after we all graduated college, and and some of them are still good friends to this day. And and it started with opening up a space and, and inviting people in and offering simple, simple food. And I realized that those, that's a sweet, I mean, that, that college time, my kids have asked me, like, Dad, should we live in the dorms when we're in college? You know, they're already thinking that. I'm like, yes, I had such a fine time. I know some people didn't love it as much, but it was such a sweet and unique time. And yet, as I've been reflecting on it, I realize it's not the way that my life works so much now. I see so many of you who I call friends, and yet we don't roll that same way. And my life sometimes feels more like this. I read this in a book recently. It says this, The problem we face today needs very little time for its statement. Our lives grow too complex and overcrowded. Even the necessary obligations which we feel we must meet, they grow overnight. And before we know it, we are bowed down with burdens, strained, breathless, and hurried, panting through a never-ending program of appointments. We are too busy to be good husbands to our wives, too busy to be good parents to our kids, too busy to be good friends to our friends and with no time at all to be friends to the friendless. Okay, fun game. Turn and talk to someone next to you. Take a guess at when was this written, do you suppose? I read it in a book, not a blog, but take a turn and talk to someone. Take a... What do you think? <laughs> All right. Let's hear who's who's feeling uh, who's feeling brave. Take venture a guess. Like I don't know. 1800s, okay? Okay? Anybody else? Within the last 5 years. It sure seems to be So, like, you, you were on to me. This was good. Um, so this is, comes from a book called Testament of Devotion It's written by this Quaker named Thomas Kelly. 1941. <laughs> so, someone's like, I was going to say that. 41. So this idea of like, man, I'm hurrying, I'm busy, I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time for my friends. I don't have time for my I don't. I find myself in there. And so what I want to do today is to just encourage you to rethink a little bit about our time and the way we get to maybe spend it with people. Because I know for me, as I has chewed on it, it has, it has, shaped, it has shaped me, um, the ideas that I want to share with you today. So if you haven't been with us this summer, we are working through um, a small section in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 uh, through 47. And we've been looking at how the early church was in community together. What did their lives look like? together. And today we're going to focus just on this small little sentence here. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So we're talking about hospitality. We're talking about being together, eating food and being together. And, and as I've reflected, I think, man, that, that time in college of opening things and being together, it is rich. And I, I want to taste it more. And I want you to taste it more. So here's how we're going to get there. This um, here's our roadmap. Um, this is Snowmass, by the way. Uh, your pastor, Jason, has two more 14ers left to climb. This is going to be his final one, he said, the last one. So this is inspiration for our friend. Uh, for us, it's just going to be our map up the backside of Snowmass. Um, we're going to begin with an overview of Zacchaeus. We will be in Luke, uh, the book of Luke. If you'd like um, to turn in your Bible there, you're welcome to, if you don't have a Bible, we now have Bibles in the seatbacks here. So if you remember, yeah, is Greg here? Yes, they're leather bound. Yes, there he is. Greg Hook, months ago, was like, we need some sweet leather Bibles. We have them. Um, so if you need one, it's yours. If you know someone who needs it, take it. If you have one and you just forgot it, use it and then put it back. Anyway, um, we're going to talk about an overview of Zacchaeus in Luke, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time considering what does it mean to be in awe of each other. It'll make sense. I promise when we get there. Uh, We're going to spend a little time talking about, you know, hospitality is not about food and drink, although food and drink can be important. And then we're going to wrap up with briefly talking about when we come together, what does it look like to be shaped by each other? Who shapes who? who? Um, So let's begin with an overview of Zacchaeus. We are in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus is in his formal ministry time now, so moving from town to town with his disciples, and they are approaching a new city, the city of Jericho, um, and he's making his way through the town, and then it says, there was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, oh, it doesn't come that way, but there was a guy named Zacchaeus, and when I was in Sunday school, the only thing I remember about Zacchaeus was he was a wee little man, Um <laughs> so it seemed important, and it turns out it's really not important at all. Uh, It's not really the central part of the story. But what is important for you to know, for some context, is the line that says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Greg Greg referenced this two weeks ago, but um, some context might be helpful. So in this time, uh, Palestine is under Roman control. So they are not free they are, they are occupied by the Romans. And the Romans have much land, and so all the territories that they are responsible for, they send governors and they send um, military people to, to keep the rule of law. Um, part of what that requires is that these people have to eat, they have to have lodging, and so they have to have money to do that. And so that comes from taxes from the Jewish people. And so instead of sending their version of the Roman IRS to collect taxes yearly, they they basically recruit from within the Jewish community. And so imagine what that would look like. Like you're you're under an occupied force, and that force says, we're going to take tax money from you, and we want some of you from within to be the tax collectors. And this is a voluntary thing, evidently. And so Zacchaeus, somewhere along the way, raised his hand and was like, oh yeah, I'll do that. Which, can you imagine how that went down? Can you imagine talking to his friends, like, hey, I'm thinking about being a tax collector. Like, what? You would betray us? You would turn on us? So I don't know how it went down, but he is at that point now where he's basically turned his back on his people, and he is taking money from them. And he is not only one of the tribe, he is the chief. So he's in charge of this entire district of tax collection, taking the money, and it says he's very rich. Evidently, taxpayers also get paid. Paid based on what they collect, so he's taking more than what he would perhaps even need from his people. So despised by his people. It's really important to recognize this, that he's probably despised by his people, and my guess is he's despised by the Romans for whom he's working, because they look at him and they're like, we need you to do this thing, but I can't imagine someone who turned on his own people. So I imagine small little world, maybe him and his tax collector friends, and that's it. So think lonely, think isolated, think lots of money and, and not anything else. That's Zacchaeus, and that's the most important part for our story today. So as we work through this, so Jesus is walking by, and Zacchaeus wants to get a look at him. And so he is a wee little man, and so he climbs up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And um, <laughs> we don't even need this. Um, and so he, he basically he, just, he, just wants to get, he wants to get a look at Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. And Jesus comes by, and he looks up at Zacchaeus, and he calls him by name, Zacchaeus! Quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. We're going to talk about what an interesting thing he invites him to Zacchaeus' house. Um, Zacchaeus quickly comes down the tree uh, and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. They said, He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. One of the things that I have missed on this, we'll, we'll look at it more deeply, but somewhere in between seven and eight, that's where like the meal occurred. And we don't really see, they don't talk about the meal, but it says this idea of like Zacchaeus stood before the Lord. They're thinking he was sitting at a meal and then he stood up. And so there's some, there's a meal that occurs there and doesn't really talk. So we're going to highlight that. But, so, but basically after the meal, he, his life has been changed in some way. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. So this might seem like an interesting passage to use to talk about hospitality, but what I love about it is it contains so many elements that we're used to with hospitality, and yet some of it's so, so different. This time it's, it's Jesus inviting himself into someone's space. There might be something for us to learn there. It's, it's A meal occurs, but it doesn't talk about the meal at all. There might be something for us. So I want to unpack three things that I see in this really interesting and I hope helpful, hopeful text. And the first is this idea of being in awe of each other when we are sharing life together. (sighs) Let me let me unpack what I mean. So in the very beginning of Luke, Luke says a pretty interesting thing that you may you may have missed. So when we look at the Gospels, some of the Gospels are written by disciples of Jesus, people who were with Jesus. So they're retelling, oh yeah, and when we were here, Jesus did this. Luke is not told that way. Luke doesn't come into the scenes until after Jesus' ministry on earth. He, he shows up in the book of Acts later on, and he is rolling with Paul. And so in the beginning of Luke, uh, Luke describes who he is. And he says, you know, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that happened um, among us, they used the eyewitness report circulating among them from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So Luke is writing this, not having been there, but by talking to eyewitnesses. So let's, let's play this little game. We don't know for sure, but let's, let's guess. Um, Luke is trying to piece together stories— and events that occurred in Jesus' ministry. And he comes, comes to this story of Zacchaeus. This um, only shows up in Luke. Where do you suppose he got this story? You know, Luke's walking around, and he's like, oh, what, what, what has happened? Where do you suppose he got this story? I don't think it's crazy to think that he got it from Zacchaeus himself. Now, someone mentioned, oh, there was this time. There was this time where this wee little man uh, climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You can imagine, he's like, well, I want to talk to him. So I want us to imagine that happens. Luke goes, enters into the house of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is an older man now and is reflecting on that encounter. So I've just, all I've done is I've changed a couple words here. and almost fell off the stage. Uh, How we doing, Shane? (laughs) Um, Imagine Zacchaeus sitting down with Luke and telling this story. And he gets to this part and he says, I I tried to get a closer look at Jesus, but but I was too short to see over the crowd. So so I ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at me and he called me my name. Zacchaeus. <laughs> Quit, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. So I can imagine Zacchaeus retelling and rethinking this and thinking, oh me, me, a, a tax collector. I can imagine some of these thoughts. He never, he didn't know who I was, he had never met me before. And yet he uses my name, which means if he knows my name, then he knows my story. He knows. He sees right into the soul of me. And he knows who I am. He knows who I ain't. He knows what I have done. He knows what I have not done. And he looks at me and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. He sees the beauty and the wonder and the glory in Zacchaeus. And I can't help but think that Zacchaeus perhaps was in awe, was in awe of this whole, this whole thing. But what's interesting as I've, as I've thought about it is I've been thinking about Jesus' role in that too. So Zacchaeus is perhaps looking at the Lord and just like, what? What? I want to imagine what Jesus was like in that situation. When you look at Psalm 139, it says this, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. This word fearfully sometimes can mean afraid, but in this context, it doesn't make any sense that it would mean afraid, um, that, the, that the creator of the universe is not afraid of us. So it can also be translated to stand in awe of to cause astonishment and awe. In Colossians one, it says this: Christ is the visible, invisible. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and it is supreme over all creation. For through Him, through Christ, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Everything was created through Him and for Him. So let's put it together. Jesus, in whom and through whom all things were created, looks at Zacchaeus. And Jesus says, I stand in awe of you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Is it too much of a stretch to think that Zacchaeus is in awe and that Jesus is in awe? And this thing starts with this mutual like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Because if that's true, that when we come together and we see each other differently, we see the beauty and the awe, if that's true, then that has some pretty cool implications. Let me, let me share a couple of those with you from the research. So uh, this is a study that I found. So um, people study awe and wonder. Uh, Lucas preached on this several months ago and talked about just the awe and glory of God. I want to I just bring it down and look, what do we know about when people are in awe Awe-struck environments, how, how do they behave? So this is a colored water droplet being dropped into a thing of milk. Awe-inspiring. Yeah, sorry. And it's just slowed down. It's put in slow motion. It's, called, it's from this video called The Slow Motion Guys. Um, and so here's what, here's what researchers have done. They're at Berkeley, and they ask participants to either watch this video or not watch this video, then ask some questions at the end. So I'm going to let you watch this video, and then I'm going to ask you the questions that they get asked. There we go. Mm. Ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I do have to admit it's kind of cool. Um And I bet if it had some music behind it, it'd be even cooler. Um, But it is water being dropped on milk. Let's just be clear. But they ask people to watch this, and then they ask these participants to answer these types of questions. I feel the presence of something greater than myself. And they answer on a scale of, like, agree to disagree. And they'll ask questions like, I feel like my own day-to-day concerns are relatively trivial. After watching water drop on milk. um, in the grand scheme of things, my own issues and concerns do not matter as much. Disagree, agree. Now, you would think there would be no difference between those who watched Water Drop on Milk and those who did. But guess what? There is a significant difference when people have just spent a minute watching Water Drop on Milk. And they're like, what? So they report, the participants see a, their sense of vastness, like the world is much bigger and huger than I ever thought. That increases significantly significantly. Levels of awe and happiness. Like, I'm so much happier after watching milk. Um, I'm so happy um, for that. Um, they talk about the sense of, like, like um, they call it smallness of self, which doesn't sound very good. But the idea of, like, like I, I am part of this really huge thing. All these things increase just from watching that. Imagine how much more if we would see the awe and the beauty and the wonder of other people. I'm going to say more on that, but, but imagine how much more awestruck we can be by knowing each other compared to a glass of milk. Here's another one. On the, college of, on the campus of Berkeley, again, they have this big, huge eucalyptus grove. Uh, I wrote eucalyptus down there to remind myself that it's not a sycamore grove because <laughs> trees in both these. Um, and what they do is they ask uh, college students to come and stand for a minute or two and stare up at these trees. Behind them, another group of college students stare up at this building. And then they ask him the similar battery of questions, and they add one cool element where the researchers have like a box of pens to answer, and the, the researcher accidentally trips and drops all the pens on the ground. And someone is there watching how many of the, pens does the the do the participants actually pick up in the different conditions. Check this out. The people who gazed up at the trees instead of the buildings, they picked up more pens just staring at the trees, you're like, you know what? I'm feeling a lot more helpful and kind and like I have more time to spend with you because I've been staring at these amazing trees. Um, increased ethical behavior. Some of the questions were along the lines of like, someone gives you the wrong cash back, what do you do with it? And the people who stare at the tree are like, I'm giving it back. And the people who looked at the building are like, I'm keeping it. <laughs> what? Reduce feelings of entitlement. So questions looking at... So It is amazing that when we just step in, and they've done this in all kinds of contexts, people looking at mountain scenes and ocean scenes, and the data is consistent, again, that when we are in awe-inspired environments, we change. Our view on the world changes. Our view and our relationship to other people changes. Our sense of bigness and grandeur and our our position in that changes. C.S. Lewis says this, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to you. So think about this. You're sitting on an airplane. You have someone into your house. You're like, well, they're kind of dull. You never say that. But you're like, I'm kind of... To think that that person may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship there are no ordinary people. In this room right now, there's not an ordinary person. You have never met a mere mortal. So here's what I want to do. I'm not going to make you do this, but I was going to. I want you to think about what would it mean to turn to the person next to you, to grab them and look at them, <laughs> and to see the awe and the wonder in them, Let me give you a sense of what this might look like. So we know that at creation, before the fall, humanity was created in perfect righteousness and perfect innocence, a reflection of God's holiness. God saw all that he had made and said, it's very good, it's very good. What does it look like when we stare into our friends, into our neighbors, into our strangers, and say, you hear their story, and they start to talk about the cause that they are fighting for. That thing that they are trying to make right, because it is wrong. That is a reflection of the glory of God in them. They're like, no, my whole life is about fighting for that thing, because that is wrong, and I want it to be right. Perfect innocence. You hear the stories of like life for the innocent, of protecting Children from sex trafficking. And you hear the stories of people who are partnering in that in some way, and you hear them tell you, and you're like, whoa, you are amazing. I am in awe of you. And when I'm in awe of you, we change as we've seen. Let's do another one. Human beings, we can reason, and we can choose. We can create things. That is because we are made in the image and the glory of God, and it is reflected in that. So you have someone to your house. Or you go to their house, and you're like, whoa, you made that side table? They're like, yeah, yeah. No, you built that thing? Oh, my gosh. That is a reflection of the glory of God in them. Whoa, you you painted that thing? Whoa, you, you wrote that song? Whoa, you did... Every creative act, every intellectual act, is an opportunity to see the glory of God reflected right back to you through that person. In Eden, humanity's primary relationship was with God. And God made the first woman because it is not good for the man to be alone. Humanity was created for fellowship. When you're with those people, my wife is one of these, who just can't get enough of people. Lindsay is one of these. Just can't wait to hear your story. That is the beauty in the image of God, reflected in that. He says, you were built for this. What a beautiful gift to see that. What would it look like when we listen for people and we hear stories of their courage? We hear stories of tenderness. We hear mercy, sacrifice, protection. Read through the Psalms and read attributes of God and look and listen for that in the people who you are dining with, who you are spending time with. It will change the way that we engage with people. When someone's like, hey, do you have time to grab dinner? you're like, nah. Like, wait a second. Wait a second. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I could do that. Next to the blessed sacrament itself. This is Lewis again. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your, your senses. If your neighbor, he or she, is your Christian neighbor, he or she is holy in almost the same way. For also Christ, I can't read the Latin, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. Isn't that beautiful? What would it look like when we spend time together? We see that and let it change us stand in awe of each other and to not just let us just be together hearing about the weather and the sports and the job. What would it look like? All right, let's move on. So we stand in awe of each other. Next, I want to talk about the food and the drink. So, so I know in our, in our house, um, we sometimes can spend a great deal of time um, struggling through that. Like, you're like, oh, let's have someone over. Like, oh, I don't know, the house is a wreck. Uh, I don't know, what would we cook? Uh, so, those kinds of things. What I want to do is, I want to challenge that it's not about the food and it's not about the drink. When we look back to Zacchaeus' story here, I want, I, want to, I want to highlight something here. We see these words in the text. See, they're buried in there like that. It's talking about Zacchaeus, and it's saying he tried. To get a look at Jesus. He ran. He climbed. In verse 6, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house with great excitement and joy. So I don't think it's, it's venturing from the text much to say that um, Zacchaeus is desperate and so excited to see Jesus. And sometimes in our lives, we are also desperate and excited to see Jesus. We are. Um, when I think about people coming into our house, Sarah and I have done premarital for several folks in the church, and there's times when people walk in, they're just excited to get to it. Like, let's just talk. Let's talk. Like, we had this fight, and we want to wrestle with it. Like, come on. And you're leaning in. And I've had those times before too, where we step in and like, come on, Jesus, come on, Jesus, let's talk. And there are times when we walk in, and it's like, no, I'm not excited. I'm not excited. We just had a fight in the car, and I don't want to talk about any of this stuff. You feel me there? So when people step into our place or when we step into people's space in these hospitable environments, there's there's something that in my mind has to change on both sides of that. So I stumbled upon this book. Actually, uh, Paul Anglin in our church gave some of us on leadership team a copy of this book. It's called Every Moment Holy. If you don't have it, I highly recommend it. It's, um, there's two, or multiple volumes. I have volume one and two. Um, and he, he writes what he calls liturgies, but you could call them reflections. Uh, I didn't grow up in a church that had a liturgical thing bent to it. So that word feels foreign to me, but, um, but they're, they're reflections on all kinds of things in life. It's pretty awesome. So what I want to do is I want to read one for you that has been so powerful for me, particularly when I think about entertaining people. When I think about someone coming to my house and my, my frustration that I can feel like, oh, I got to make some food, and oh my gosh, it's so expensive now, all that kind of stuff. I have found that to consider some of these ideas has reframed the whole thing, particularly knowing that someone might be walking into my door and they don't feel desperate for Jesus. They don't have a hunger at all. What does it look like for our meal to be part of that? So let's read, let's read this one. He says, Is it possible that a meal might be so infused with holy artistry, so thoughtfully prepared with intent to convey comfort and delight, as to make the one who consumes it remember again if even for a moment that there is a god and that his tender care for them or his care for them is tender if so then let us set about to make that meal o oh lord let's stop i'm going to read more but just just consider that idea to say hey is this food just about how much salt is on it and does it taste good or not or is there something more about this meal if this meal can accomplish something else, how awesome with that? So he says, let us stretch our artistry, O Lord, using every means at our disposal to craft a meal that might awaken in the souls of those who share it a yearning hunger, which might only be finally satisfied by the bread of life and the wine of God at the time of the world's remaking. I love his his poetry in this. He goes on to talk about what would it look like to create with salt and with spice and with heat. And he he lists all kinds of things, which I'm going to skip over. They're beautiful, particularly if you're a culinary person, which I'm I'm not. Um, But here's where he picks up, which I really want to drive home. Let us make this day a meal that would point to that day. A meal to remind the people in our house of the beauty and the love and the promise undergirding all creation. Let us make a meal to remind our pilgrim guests that life will not always be so burdened, that their days of exile will end, that they will feast at last joyfully in the city of their hope, at the table of their God-King, at the wedding feast of their Prince, at the dawning of a golden age, untouched by mortal sorrows. If such a meal can be made by these hands, in this kitchen, oh Lord, then let us breathe here the breath of your spirit and let us set about to make that meal. Amen. Isn't it gorgeous? To me, it's so beautiful and it's a reminder I need. Because the truth is, it's not about the food itself. It's not. It can be animal crackers in your dorm room. It really can, but I think it's about the posture and the heart behind it, that as I'm doing the attacks and as I'm preparing to say, God, this is more than, than what it seems. It's not about the food. It's about the people coming together. Researchers, I've found this, this study, researchers have asked people this question. What is your most memorable meal? Kind of a fun study. And they ask people of all ages, what is your most memorable meal? And people describe that. And they try to catalog it. And what they find is the most memorable meals um, occur around big events. So it's graduation from this thing and weddings and the big conversation I had and the meal after I proposed and these kind of big things. And what they found is people don't ever talk about the food itself. Like, what did you have? Like, I don't remember. Maybe it was chicken. I don't, I don't remember. It's not the food. And so the, the, the authors conclude a meal is a powerful cultural medium that somehow transcends its value and meaning as a tangible object. The food as an object doesn't matter. It's helpful to have food, for sure. But it, it transcends that because of who we are together, when we come together, and our hot heart posture around that. Let's do one more um, about our space, our physical space. like, <laughs> what is that? Uh, this is the view outside of Sarah and I's second home. So I was in graduate school at the time. Um, I made very little money, and Sarah made very little money working for camp. So we bought the smallest house that, well, it's the only house we could afford. It happened to be very small, 700 square feet or so. And this is the view right out the front door. We called this Poop Lagoon um, <laughs> because I think that's what it is. It's part of the septic system somehow, and it would bubble over like that and um, smell lovely. And um, we were embarrassed by it. We just were. That was, that's the view right outside the front of the house. We were like, we're not inviting people over to our tiny house to smell our, and see our poop lagoon. We're just not. <laughs> and yet we were newly married. We were excited to have people in the house. And so we just did. And we'd say, hey, come on over and, you know, watch out for the poop lagoon. And some, some of the sweetest moments we had in that time happened in that small, tiny little... <laughs> Tiny living room. Because the house doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The poop lagoon doesn't matter. So here's, here's a reflection again for, for that, that doing of the stuff, the cleaning of the floor and repairing the stuff and like, I don't want to do this and yet it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Instead, I love this. For the blessings of this dwelling, oh Lord, for the fast foundation and for the roof stretched overhead and for the sh- canopy, for the luxury and security of windows and doors, for all these strong walls, Staying wind and weather, for comforts of floor and furniture, of heating and cooling, of fresh running water and electrical wiring, for fixtures, appliances, and conveniences that make our lives here less toilsome. We give you thanks, O Lord, acknowledging that all provision is your provision. And here's the part that for me I need this place, it's a gift. The sharing of life, that's the gift. And so the necessary investment of time and resource towards the maintenance and repair of this dwelling need not be regarded as a burden, but as a good stewardship and a glad opportunity. Give grace, therefore, that, we might, that I might now perform the task before me, not in grudging irritation, not yelling at my kids, quick, they're coming over, like, stop making a mess. Not in grudging irritation, but in gentleness and generosity of spirit as a caretaker of your blessings, and as an act of loving service to all the family and friends or strangers who will shelter here and enjoy fellowship beneath this roof. It doesn't change everything. So if, if one of the barriers to you to, to inviting people into your space, whatever that space looks like, is like, ah, I just don't, ah, I don't know what I'd make, ah, Stop. Don't, it doesn't, that doesn't matter. We are creating an environment. Where people come and engage and are sharpened by us. So band, if you wanna come back, I'm gonna land this thing with our last point. But as a recap, when we come together, we can stand and think and be in awe of each other based on the way we see each other. It's not about that food and the drink. It's about our hot heart posture as we prepare these environments. And finally, this question of who, who shapes who? So I want to highlight two things in our text today. One is this. Jesus is walking down the street and he looks up and he sees this guy in a tree. Zacchaeus. And we're like, whoa, he knows my name. And then he says this weird thing. I must be a guest in your home today. Isn't that kind of a weird thing you think about that? Shane, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And you're like, well, hey, that's not exactly how this is supposed to work. Um, I think it's supposed to be, hey, Shane, would you like to come to my house for dinner? That's the way hospitality is supposed to work. And yet we don't see it playing out here. And there are really good reasons for that, not least of which is Zacchaeus culturally is not in a position to be able to invite Jesus for dinner. Zacchaeus is outside. He is on the margins. Jesus is a religious leader. He's a rabbi. You don't, you don't do that. And Jesus bucks the system and leans in and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. David, I'm coming to your house today. Ashley, I'm coming to your house today. It changes things. So here's, here's one encouragement. What would it look like to set aside any expectations or ideas that we have about how hospitality is supposed to look? What if we just threw that aside and said, I want to engage with people. I just want to love people. I don't care what we're eating. I don't care where we're doing it. I just want to be together. What would it look like? I can invite anybody. I can be with anybody. It could be someone walking down the street. It can be a neighbor who I don't know at all. It doesn't, those things don't, they don't matter. They don't matter. And last, it's interesting. We have this this in verse 8. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord. And he's like a changed man. He begins the interaction as a tax collector and he ends, I'm assuming, as a former tax collector saying, I'm giving everything that I own to anybody who has cheated, which is basically everybody, I'm paying it forward. So his, his days are done as a tax collector. He has changed over a meal, which we don't even see show up in there. But I've been thinking about what, what do you, these types of interactions maybe look like? What did that, that look like? So Jesus comes walking into Zacchaeus' house. If it's like me, maybe there's some, maybe there's some some food to set out, maybe Maybe there's some drink to set out, maybe, maybe not maybe they looked around ah, cool I like, I like this place A little show and tell, like oh I, I didn't know you painted, that's cool oh, I didn't know you built little coffee drippers, that, that's cool first conversation, how's work how are the kids stories laughter but then there's this thing that happens in some interactions that doesn't happen in others. It's that, it's that conversation that's not up here. It's that conversation that's down there. And I find that when we get together, we sometimes shy away from that because it's awkward to ask the question, no, how are you, how are you really doing? Hey, I heard you say that. What, tell me more about, about that. How, how, how is relationship with your roommates right now. Wait, you just said you haven't seen your dad in three years? What's, that is, that's awkward. That could be awkward. And yet what I think we see is an invitation to venture, to venture into that. To venture forward. Because it changes us. So last story, we were hosting a barbecue out here, I don't know, in the fall, maybe last fall, last spring, I don't know when it was. And uh, this guy comes walking by, He's clearly um, under the influence of something. So his eyes are glazed over. He's kind of stumbling around. We walked up to him, and I said, hey, man, would you like a, you like a hot dog? And he kind of focused on it. He's like, yeah, sure. It sounds fun. Here's a bottle of water. He went and sat in the grass right over here. And I went and I sat down with him, and I started asking him questions. And he would be, I mean, ugh, he's just totally out of it. And he would come back around. And I was like, tell me tell me about yourself. Like, who are you? And we talked. And through this, he says something really interesting. He says, you know, the best year of my life was that year that I was in prison. I was like, like, what? He's like, yeah, because I I was clean. And I I wasn't damaging the relationships of people who I cared for. And it changed me. I don't look at our homeless community the same way that I used to. I don't, because I had an interaction on a sidewalk with a cheap hot dog and a bottle of water. And it's changed the way that I see people in our community. It's changed the way I see our neighbors by recognizing whoa, the way that I thought that this went down is not the way that it has to be. And so that's the invitation for us. That as we commune together, as we love on our community together, what would it look like to dive into people's stories, to ask questions, to get deeper in the conversation, to see the awe and the wonder in people, and to not worry about all of our stuff and all of our things being in the way of that, but to lean in knowing that we will be changed and that people will be changed.